Save the date for the 12th of September. Join our webinar on digital transformation in manufacturing. We are exploring how IoT, AI and smart factories are reshaping our sector. Hear from industry leaders like Airbus, Rolls-Royce and Heriot Watt University. This is a must attend for professionals and decision makers in manufacturing. So register now at resources.red-fern.co.uk slash webinar. That's resources.red-fern.co.uk slash webinar. The link is also in the description. I had a great conversation this week with Kevin Matthews, the CEO of Scott Barder. We discussed the unique employee-owned structure of the business, how the UK government can better support manufacturing and the global competitive pressures at play. We discussed also how not to be a victim of technology hype. And to that point, we discussed AI and the impact that it's having on Scott Barder regarding employee motivation and innovation. From Redfern Media, this is Remake Manufacturing. My guest this week is Kevin Matthews, the CEO at Scott Bader. Scott Bader is a fascinating employee-owned global manufacturer specializing in advanced composites, structural adhesives, and functional polymers. With a century of expertise and commitment to innovation, they've built a reputation for outstanding quality and technical expertise in a variety of markets worldwide. Today, we delve into Kevin's role in shaping the future of the business while considering the interests of employees and navigating the unique challenges of a multinational employee-owned company. So, Kevin Matthews, welcome to the show. Nathan, thanks very much for uh, having me today. Scott Bader is a really fascinating company. Can you tell us a little bit more about its background and structure? Well, the company was formed in 1921 by a Swiss emigre, uh, Ernest Bader, uh, and his wife, Dora Scott, hence Scott Bader. And then literally 30 years later in 1951, they decided to give the company away to the, to the employees. So they put it into a charitable trust. Uh, so the company is actually a charity and a percentage of our profits every year get given to charitable causes. Um, and the, the shareholders or the beneficiaries of, of the trust are the employees. And so, um, you know, I'm the CEO. Um, my colleagues both work for me and I essentially report to them as shareholders. And there is a democratically elected body called the Global Members Board, where 50 colleagues basically vote in one person. And that body holds me to, to account for delivery of the strategy, uh, for you know, the results, the performance of the business, for the normal things that shareholders are interested in. So it's not a works council. It's very much a shareholder representative body. That's a fascinating structure. How how does that structure contribute to the way that you operate as a as a CEO and the innovation you're able to drive within within the organization? I imagine that from an employee point of view, there's far more commitment. Um, people are far more sort of motivated than through traditional hierarchical sh- structures in more in more conventional companies. Maybe talk about some of the benefits this sort of structure offers you and maybe some of the drawbacks as well as you as you may see them 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, so because of the structure, people are much more involved, and you know, there is a, I would say, much more um, a voice from from my colleagues in terms of um, if there's an issue in the organisation or something that they think could be improved, I get to know about it. So in some ways. That's a real advantage as a CEO. One of the biggest challenges when you're when you're when you're sort of senior in organization is gaining access to what's going on on the ground. It's got part of that's relatively easy. It also means that, that you know there's a there's a really strong view around investing in and building for the future. And again, because we don't have quarterly shareholder reports and all that sort of stuff, provided the colleague base as a whole is willing to to back an idea or to back a project or to back an expansion plan, then we do it. Um, and, um, you know, obviously still needs to have financial return, but we're a bit more um, tolerant about long-term versus short-term. Uh, I think in terms of, of um, the disadvantages, clearly there's a lot more voice. So sometimes, uh, you know, that can, that can represent... Uh, I guess in, in you know the organisation maybe disgruntled over something that becoming quite vocal, and therefore it's really important for the leadership team to communicate well, communicate often, and and really ensure that that we are bringing our colleagues with us at all times, um, and particularly important when you're going through any transformational change. Remake Manufacturing is brought to you by Redfern Media, the digital agency for B2B manufacturers. We partner with B2B manufacturers to listen, think, create and innovate. To find out more, head over to remakemanufacturing.com and sign up to the podcast, plus manufacturing marketing and technology insights. Now, back to the show. Let's talk a little bit about the manufacturing industry writ large, but I want to put that in the context of Scott Barda. So maybe first, maybe you can just give us an idea of the size and scale of the organization, just employees, revenue headcount, you know, any, any metrics that you'd like to share. So we're roughly 300 million turnover business, uh, around 800, 850 employees. Um, and we're global in nature, so we have manufacturing sites in UK, France, Croatia, uh, United Arab Emirates, uh, South Africa, Canada, and most recently in USA. And then we have a joint venture in Brazil and um, have a very strong manufacturing relationships in both India and China. So we're truly global and service, you know, a range of customers across, a, again, a wide range of, of markets, everything from personal care through to luxury um, yachts, through to wind turbines, batteries. So we, we're doing a lot more in recent years in, in the renewable space. And, and one of the benefits of composites, it's, it's very lightweight, but super strong. So, you know, again, when you're, anything to do with energy, whether that's an electric car or a wind turbine blade, you want it to be light and you want it to be strong. So we're finding increasing demand for our, our products and also uh, future technology in those areas. Considering that you're a global organization, but you've got a large proportion of your workforce in the UK, how do you think about how to remain competitive in a, in a global market um, while keeping the a very strong sort of UK manufacturing base? 
Yeah, so we have about 300 people in the UK um, of the 800. Um, and the, the challenge simply in the U- UK is really making sure that, that the UK itself stays competitive, you know, and I think that's, that's whether it's energy, it's whether it's ability to export, import, and, and really our customers, uh, you know, are they, are, they, are they sort of committing long-term to the UK or, or are they moving offshore? At the moment, we haven't seen any sign of that, and the UK is very, still a very strong market for us and one that we believe is there for us for the future. Uh, and I think that that's reinforced by, you know, the commitments that the government is, is making in terms of investment in renewables, which ultimately feeds our industry. But I think there are some sort of concerns starting to grow, particularly around availability of of labour and, and and skills, um, and and I think also concerns around uh, some of the regulatory framework um, as uh, following our exit from from Europe, where basically all of Europe had one common uh, regulatory platform for chemicals. Um, the UK having left is now looking at its own version of this and, and that can create, could, could create a significant uh, dislocation in, in, in the market, both in terms of cost. So the cost of re-registering materials could be anything up to, you know, for the industry in the UK, anything up to 4 billion, which is, which is a significant number. Uh, but also availability of materials in the UK. So there are some, there are some concerns um and but you know we're still we are you know uk originated business we still believe the uk offers a lot of potential particularly around innovation and technology and capability of our technical base how well do you think the uk government are doing at supporting the manufacturing industry in the uk and and what more do you think can be done Okay, well, I'm well. I'm also a member of a, an organisation called Society of the Chemical Industry, which again is a charity uh, formed in 1881, so it's been around for a, for a while, and really represents um, the, in chal- and challenges taking technology from from universities, from academia into industry, uh, and that's been it's it's sort of reason reason for its ex- existence for the last for the last 150 years. And we've just written a, a sort of white paper for, you know, really directed towards the government and, and other, you know, institutions. Really, really important that we have a strategy for the UK around its manufacturing and, and, and how manufacturing in the UK is going to be supported in the long term. And I think that, you know, anybody in manufacturing is sensitive to the fact that we haven't really had a clear direction for some some considerable period of time right now, and that most recently, you know, the the rapid cycling of ministers and and, gov- and even you know government uh, prime ministers um, has really made that sort of consistency of message and long term strategic direction quite difficult to determine. Um, and you know, it's really important because investment decisions, um, you know, plans for the future predicated and dependent upon on exactly the policy decisions governments are made, particularly in a competitive world where you've got major investments and major commitments for investments being made in, in the USA with the, um, uh, with the IRA for fund and also in Europe with the Green Fund. You know, these are, 
our major, major commitments of, you know, t- hundreds of billions of dollars or euros uh, to to support the sorts of industries that we sell into. And in the absence of any policy indication or commitment of intent from the UK government, it makes decisions around investments and commitments of capital much more difficult. You've got a really strong relationship with your employees at at the company, and you've obviously got a very long history of manufacturing in the UK as well. When you think about how the company is evolving and uh, certain innovations, product innovations or, or otherwise, how do you make sure that you don't leave people behind and that you upskill the right people to take them with you? Um, considering that the business always has to grow and change and evolve and improve, um, but you also have a responsibility to sort of take people with you as well. How, how do you strike the balance there? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question, and and I think that um, I think there's just two parts of that. One, you know, I think for any business, but particularly for an employee-owned organization. Um, we, we need to re- be rewarding people that come to work with us in, in, in two ways. It's obviously, paying rations, you know, standard, that needs to be, to be met, but also development opportunities. Uh, we, we want to be a really great place to work and for people to grow and, 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 and really become, and we use this phrase, the best they can be. And that's training. It's, it's, opportunities for you know doing things that they couldn't couldn't ordinarily do um and you know and some of our structure helps that so individuals can put themselves forward to sit on the group board or the members board or the commonwealth board which is a charity commission a charity board rather um so they can get opportunities which are not generally available uh to to employees in in other organizations but it's that training. It's that. It's that recognizing that that this is a place to come to work if you really want to be to be developed. Um, so there's that. That's that's the sort of contract that that we need to recognize that we're in with our with our colleagues. You're you're not just a a business CEO with a, a good understanding of the commercial aspects of how to run a business. You're also a a fellow of the Royal Society of Chemistry with a very strong technical background in this space as well. How, how does that technical expertise contribute to your success as a, as a CEO and board member, do you think? Yeah, I mean, you know, we're, we're in a technical market. Um, we sell technical products um, into applications which are technical. So so it's quite handy to have a little bit of a technical knowledge. <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, although, you know, I'm, I'm no, by, by no means, a, you know, uh, trained as a scientist, but I know me a scientist right now. That's a long time ago. But but I have an appreciation for what it takes, and I have an appreciation for for both the the challenges that have to be overcome and the timelines that are often involved in bringing new technologies to market. Um, so so that's really helpful when you're when you're in a in a business and a commercial organisation because you can judge timing you can judge where other organizations are in terms of their own ability to upscale their technologies um and 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 it also helps me i guess glean what is real versus what is hype 
okay mm. and, and and when any two new technologies come along the door they always sort of sit on a hype curve mm. and people you know slightly oversell them because they're all really exciting and and you know my job is to is to not get pulled along by that and again having a deep technical background allows me to to get a little bit more objective about the real potential for behind behind technologies but you know the world is is really interesting right now as the whole move towards sustainability and you know re re looking at, at what traditionally been petrochemical supply chains and converting them into into supply chains from renewables whether that's whether that's bio based or, or or you know direct from CO two or whatever it is um, you know that creates a whole different um, supply chain game and and again that means that. The products that you you have need to be redeveloped, need to be re, reformatted, um, and and just again understanding how you can play that into into markets. You know, fundamentally recognizing that it's your customers that need to drive this change quite often. Um, that you may be, but our job is to make sure that customers can do that, and that we develop. Um, uh, matching, matching sort of, if you like, product ranges that are buyer based that customers can pick from um, if if they want to move in that direction. What's a good example of products that have been all hype and no no substance in your opinion? And 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 what's your process for deciding which is which? <laughs> well, that's a good question. I mean, you know. <laughs> There are several waves of these things, okay? Um, so What's the I'll, latest I'll give one? you a, um, I, I mean, the, well, the, way, the latest one is probably AI, okay? Right. Everything's going to get changed by AI. You know, yeah, it's, it's going to have a role. It's, it's going to be impactful. Um, but actually gleaning how it's going to get used and how how that's really going to change things positively is, is, is you know, is, is down to the very specifics um, of, of exactly what, what application that's in. And I think what, what tends to happen is, you know, things get rolled out and then there's a realization that perhaps they don't do quite what's needed for the, for the market or the customers. And then they get rolled back again. And, and you know, and, and we've seen this, we've seen these hype curves. We saw it with the dot-com boom in the early, in the early two thousands. We saw it with nanotechnology, you know, late two thousands, you know, there, there are, we tend to see these, these, these waves. Um, and and you know the the reality is very significant things come out of them, but it's not the whole. It's not you know if you look at dot com, you know Amazon's the Amazon's the Googles the Microsofts major winners, but there are lots and lots of companies that fell away. Lots of technologies that weren't successful because they didn't meet a market need well enough. Um, and 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 I think this is this is probably where we are with AI right now. Mm. Really interesting. How have you considered the implications that AI will have on Scott Barter? So yeah, AI is uh, we we see in, in probably a couple of different uh, two two or three different areas. Business process and business intelligence is your obvious one, which is you know how do we process information? How do we make sure information is collated um, for for business leaders to be able to quickly digest and, and make decisions on. So that's that's one aspect where I think AI can clearly play a role, uh, which is more than just simple business intelligence and, and, and graph formation, but it's actually, you know, pulling out 
stuff from both the internal environment and the external environment and simulating that. The other one is around our manufacturing processes and really looking at, um, you know, monitoring, using data, using sensors to actually give real-time data about the manufacturing process so we can continually optimise uh, and, 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 you know, ensure improved quality, improved reliability and improved productivity. Um, I think those are the, the probably the two big areas that we're interested in. You mentioned earlier, Kevin, that obviously you're part of a global supply chain, you know, a, a significant proportion of your employee base is in the UK, but obviously you've got operations in different countries as well, US and and and, and China that you mentioned, um, uh, along with others. Are there any specific support packages or initiatives that have been really beneficial in developing those areas and how do you make sure that you're balancing the needs of your employees in the UK with those in in other regions? Yeah, I mean I think I mentioned already uh, the IRA which is a US US uh, investment package so it's called the Inflation Reduction Act. I think it's you know um, in excess of 400 billion dollars targeted towards uh renewables and 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 sort of technology of the future. Um and you know that is that has sort of started a global race to major major packages. So so Europeans got one. You've got um, Canada right next door to the USA, which are fighting really hard to pull you know to pull industry across the border. Um, so you've got this global geopolitical sort of um, race for for those new new industries. Um, you know, and again, it's back to the. You know, the as you move towards renewables and as you move different, as you change your supply chains, we're going to be creating new industries here. And those countries that can bring those new industries in will win. Okay, so that's why a lot of money is being deployed right now to, to capture them. And it's same in China, same in India. And it's linked as well to deglobalization. So you've got lots of uh, countries are now, who are now sort of seeking, particularly for their energy infrastructure, this renewable energy energy infrastructure, a certain percentage of the materials used in the construction and, and the construction itself to, to come from within country. So made in Britain, made in the USA, made in China, whatever it might be. Um, and and so, so governments playing that role of capturing industry is really important for any country and any workforce and labour force in any country. So if the UK can bring it, you know, can win and bring in significant manufacturing industry for the renewables, then that will help secure the business, the, the jobs of, of my colleagues in the UK as well. Now, fortunately, we can also export. So there's, there's, we have that flexibility, but, but that becomes more problematic the more boundaries are put up by other countries. Kevin, we end the show every week with the same question that we ask all of our guests by asking everyone to share the one invention that if it was never manufactured, your life would be unbearable. Yeah, that's a really challenging one, isn't it? Um, I mean, in the modern world, the one invention that I think I would struggle with is a smartphone. Mm. But it's probably true. Yeah. Great stuff. Kevin, thank you for being a guest on the show today. Thanks. Thanks, Nathan. And, and I've enjoyed it. 
Subscribe to the podcast in all the usual places, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, and Google Music. Thank you for listening to this edition of Remake Manufacturing. I'm Nathan Anibaba. See you next time. Bye.